0: Please take your copy of God's Word and be turning to Luke chapter 4. We'll continue our study this morning with Luke chapter 4. We left off last week with verse 13, and I had intended to go through verse 22 this morning, but we are going to conclude with verse 19 today and then pick the last 10 verses of this pericope up next week. So Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 19, and remember as I read, these are the words of the Lord. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. And He was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth. Where he had been brought up and as was his custom he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we often do, we will pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you this morning as we do each Sunday, of people who are hungry to see Jesus. But we need more than the Jesus we hear about in the world. We need much more than the Jesus that the world feigns to glorify, than the Jesus that the world has tried to co-opt and make after its own image. We need the Jesus revealed in the pages of Scripture. We need the Jesus whom you sent to earth and the Jesus who was unashamed of who He was in His mission on this earth. Please help us to see that Jesus and because of seeing Him, love Him more. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have a high level of confidence that if you have at any point in time spoken to me about Peter Jackson's movie adaptations of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, I'm confident that you have heard at least two things. First, Peter Jackson did not understand Tolkien's theme of masculine magnanimity. And as a result, this is the second thing. His male leads in the movie were effectively neutered individuals. Bob Barker would be so proud. This did, in Jackson's mind, have a positive upside. It made the men more acceptable and relatable to our current generation, which does say quite a bit. I could say more than this, but that's my main beef with the movies. Consequently, the ascendant king, Aragorn, is an emotional dumpster fire. He's not sure of himself and his abilities, and he seems laggard about taking the throne of Gondor. Better to have him play the reluctant hero card, so Jackson thought. After all, who needs the narrative genius of arguably the greatest fantasy series of all time. Well, this much at least relates to our text this morning. Ever since the dying out of the Puritans, pastors and theologians and writers and Christians all across the West have been hard at work crafting, forming, creating, recreating a Jesus who looks a whole lot less like the God-man revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, and a whole lot like one of us. A trending comic clip online has Jesus confronting a group of pastors. You may have seen this clip. Jesus, with his arms extended in plea, says to the group of pastors, the difference between you and me is that you use Scripture to determine what love is, And I use love to determine what scripture is. I know it probably makes you want to throw up in the back of your throat. But that does really encapsulate the zeitgeist of our generation. We've ripped the Son of God out of the word of God in order to justify our rebellion against God. The trending Jesus today has no magnanimity. His coming kingdom is grounded on no greater truth than the theme song from Barney the Dinosaur. I love you, you love me, we're all a happy family. Acceptable Jesus cares nothing for the rule of righteousness he was ordered to establish by the Father. Trendy Jesus is nothing more Perhaps he's even less than Peter Jackson's Aragorn. He is a reluctant hero, and that's at best. But we like that. Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But that Jesus, the Jesus that we've recreated in our image, has a major flaw. That Jesus can't save anybody. And, to boot, He is certainly not the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. The true Jesus revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture is so far removed from the world's Antichrist version, it's unrecognizable to most Christians today when they encounter the real Jesus in Scripture. But here in our text, we will see today Jesus boldly announce who he is. He knows what he's about, and he is unashamed to accomplish it, regardless of what fame it will cost him or what his own generation would attempt to do to him. Now today, in verses 14 through 16, we are going to see the return of the king. And in verses 17 through 19, we are going to see the revelation of the king. And next week, as we conclude the passage, we'll look at the rejection of the king. Let me say briefly before I go on, we're going to hit another change in our Luke outline this morning. In chapters 1 to 2, we were introduced to John and Jesus. In chapter 3, all the way through 413, Jesus was prepared for his ministry, he was anointed to do ministry. And then this morning, we're beginning the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and this is the last time you'll hear me mention about the outline for some time, because this period runs all the way through the end of chapter 9. Well, let's look at the first three verses this morning, verses 14 to 16. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues being glorified by all. These two verses function as a major transition in the narrative. The commission and initial test of the Messiah is complete. He has, in fact, passed his entrance exams, and now he gets to work with zero hesitation what he's here to do. The setting is Galilee, located in the northmost part of Palestine, This territory was divided into two parts. Lower Galilee, where Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was located, was to the west of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. It was considered to be one of the most fertile areas in all of Israel at that time. Upper Galilee, known as Galilee of the Gentiles, is a mountainous region located on the edge of modern-day Lebanon. It was there... That Jesus would begin to accumulate a crowd of disciples from which he would select most of the 12 apostles and perform most of his miracles and be rejected by those people who knew him best. Again, you see in verse 14, Jesus makes his moves in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said last week this is not a new kind of relationship between the second and third members. Of the Holy Trinity. This is Luke's way of showing us how the Spirit, at times of his own choosing, but most frequently in connection with faithful obedience to God, both guides and equips his people for powerful kingdom ministry. Jesus serves here as the archetypical member of the true Israel. He is here, the example that we are to emulate, that we are to follow in obedience, being filled with the Spirit and empowered for ministry in the kingdom. Before his homecoming in Nazareth, which we'll get to in verse 16, the news cycle, if you will, preceded him. You see in verse 14 that it had already spread through the surrounding district The Greek word news in the Legacy Standard Bible and most other translations is an interesting choice. The Greek word is fame, and it's the root of our English word fame. This wasn't just data that was making the rounds. It was popularity. John's Gospel tells us that at this point, Jesus had already been ministering for about a year, largely in the Judean area. He turned water into wine. He drove out the peddlers from the temple grounds. He led a very successful baptism ministry near to where John the Baptist was. All of that took place in John chapters 1 to 3. And by the time he gets to Galilee, stardom, if you will, had beat him there. Notice, though, that the teaching is what Luke wants to emphasize for us. We immediately think Jesus, ministry, we think miracles. That's the first thing that comes to our mind. But Luke is trying to point us to the importance of the impact of Jesus' teaching from verse 15. He was teaching in their synagogues, and that led to him being glorified by all. This is going to become important next week when we see the reaction of the home crowd to Jesus' teaching ministry. Pause for just a minute to consider with me. With all of this fame and glory, all of which Jesus was worthy of, the returning king first showed unwavering devotion to the Father. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Regular attendance in the synagogue, regular attendance to the word of God. Where's the big-time speaking engagements? Nazareth was, after all, kind of a hillbilly town. Where's the Colosseums filled with listeners and the publicity and the pomp that man's heart craves? Our Lord would have none of it. Regardless of how busy he was or the increasing time demands God put on his life, he would not give up on the public means of grace ordained by the father. He would not forsake the house of his God, Nehemiah 10:39, and he would not live by bread alone, but every word proceeding from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8:3. Brothers and sisters, if the slanderer cannot win in private negotiations in your mind, and God chooses to bring you in his kindness and his goodness and his mercy into a season of great abundance, of various kinds, the enemy of your soul will try and snatch your heart away from your duty as a soldier of the cross by means of vain glory. Remember the truth that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. 2 Timothy 2 verse 4 Our Lord has just gone from a wilderness of solitude and want And inside of a year, his popularity has eclipsed that of John the Baptist, and he is the talk of the entire Jewish nation. Most pastors today would not handle popularity this way. Bowing to the platform that they've been given, and the popularity and the praise, they recuse themselves from shepherding the sheep that God has called them to in order to go on the conference circuit and meet those book deal deadlines and do that big news interview where they virtue signal for the people in Ukraine whom they know nothing about other than what the baby murder supportering news media has told them. And most Christians today see those figures on the internet and say, Amen, praise God. And we support them. Where you might think, well, God gave them that platform. You don't want them to waste their talent, do you? Certainly not. No one should waste the talents that God gives. But if you aren't going to shepherd the sheep, don't call yourself a shepherd. For most of us, it's probably never going to be fame. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's a zealousness. For beginning your own business. Maybe you've overcommitted in your entrepreneurship, or a whole slew of business opportunities have come your way, so much so that when Wednesday or Sunday rolls around, you perpetually have a donkey in the ditch, and that's your excuse for ignoring the assembly of the brethren. You've forgotten, or we might even say intentionally. Forsaken the kingdom that you are really on earth for. Brothers and sisters, never abandon the public means of grace. Our Lord did not set this example for us, and we should not walk in it. Not for fame or famine, not for pretext or preference, and certainly not for fear of COVID. God commands our faithfulness to the weekly assembly of ourselves and unless he providentially hinders us from attending that, the Christian soldier's orders are semper fidelis to the worship of the people of God. Always faithful. The second thing that I want you to notice from these initial verses is the return of the king was marked by godless worship. I'll say that again. The return of the king was marked by godless worship. In verse 14, you saw that the news or fame about him spread through all the surrounding district. And in verse 15, because of his teaching, he was being glorified by all. Now you may be thinking, godless worship. The worship that Jesus is receiving in these verses sounds entirely appropriate to me. Remember, however, that initial reactions are not ultimate reactions. They like him now, for those of you familiar with this passage of Scripture, that will shortly change. Consider the phrase doxa being glorified, in verse 15. It is only used in the Greek New Testament to describe the worship of of God. And here in this one instance in scripture Luke ascribes that kind of worship to Yahweh, he ascribes it from these people to Jesus. These people were giving him a kind of glory that you would expect Christ to receive. So what makes it godless? Well, most of you know where this story ends, but if you don't, the worship service given to Jesus in this moment ends up with this crowd of people trying to pick Him up and throw Him off a mountain. Nazareth, like all of the areas where Jesus had been traveling, was in a state of expectation. They were hoping that Jesus was the Christ of God, but they wanted... A Christ that they designed. They wanted the Christ that they were expecting. They wanted the Christ that would do for them what they wanted done. They wanted the one that they hoped for. They didn't want the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 Brothers and sisters, beware of following a Jesus of your own making. Our Lord never said, if anyone would come after me, I'll gladly let him. And he can boss me around and tell me how to act and what I'm allowed to teach and how nice I should be to everyone. Furthermore, I will listen when he pleads with me to let women preach and sodomites become communing members at my table. And of course, I'll understand when he drives his teenage daughter to get an abortion, that would look bad for both him and me. I know we feel far removed from that debased American idol Jesus here at Christ the King. But I want to ask you the question, how did America get to the place where that's their Jesus? How did they get there? It's because they refused to love everything that was revealed to them about Jesus in Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, can I challenge you this morning? Do you rejoice in the Jesus who gives out talents to his people unequally? Some here have been given far more than you have. And you're bitter because you tell yourself that brother or sister has more than me. But in reality, isn't it Jesus who you've got problems with? Or what about the Jesus who expected that after his ascension, his disciples would fast? Do you love the Jesus who commands you to give up in order that you might know him more? And what about the Jesus who told you to rejoice in persecution? And even Luke 6.22, he said, leap for joy. Are you loving that Jesus when you complain of even mild discomfort? What about the Jesus who told you to love your enemies? But surely he didn't mean that a little bitterness in your heart towards your family or your friends or other covenant members who have snubbed you in some way, surely he wasn't talking about that kind of thing. Everybody deals with that. What about the Jesus who told you to forgive that covenant member or family member as many times in a day as they repent? And you still roll your eyes when your kids repeat the same sins over and over and over. And that Jesus also said that he would judge you by the standard you judge others with. What about the Jesus who told Martha to just stop being anxious and to die to busyness and to sit at his feet and just listen to him? Is that the Jesus that you are glad to follow? Brothers and sisters, I love the Reformation, and I love that we have come to a place of understanding the Scripture in light of its rich theological tradition. But Reformed theology is not enough. Loving the solas of the Reformation is not enough. A proper understanding of the hypostatic union of Jesus is not enough. Christ demands that we take all of Him, revealed in the Scriptures. All of Christ for all of life. At some point, if you belong to Christ, He will pursue you and shatter that honeymoon picture of Him that you have in your mind and ask you the thing that you've been unwilling to give to Him because He loves you. In the words of the Amplified Bible, If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself, setting aside his selfish interests, and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. Luke 9, 23. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Lewis said, Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Brethren, let us also together repent of our designer Jesus. Repent and embrace the fullness of all that is revealed to us about him in the Holy Word. Now we'll go on to verse 17. And we'll look at the revelation of the king. We see that as Jesus took his stand in front of the synagogue in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now before I go on, let me just say something about the synagogue. We're not exactly sure where the synagogues came from. But it's likely that they formed, after there was no access to the temple anymore, a place where Jews could come together and still be instructed and taught and learn the word of God and obey the law. Prior to this period in the synagogue service, the entire assembly would have come together and they would have recited Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, or the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, so on and so forth. They would have had a selection of scripted prayers. There would have been a reading from the law, but then, after the reading from the law, came this moment. There would have been a a reading from the prophets. And that would have been followed by a short teaching period, and then a benediction. As a qualified male, and they knew what those were back then, (laughs) Jesus would have voluntarily stood and taken the scroll at this point. So as the reading of the law is finished, and the man who volunteered to read read and then sat down, Jesus, when it was time for the prophetic reading, would have voluntarily stood up and walked to the front and taken the scroll. And everyone would have stood as Jesus prepared to read. This is one of the reasons that we stand in honor of God's word whenever the word is read on Sunday morning. And as he begins to read, think about this moment. In Nazareth, This had been a long time coming. The mysterious boy who was conceived illegitimately before Joseph and Mary were officially wed, who is now a bona fide rabbi, he's done miracles and taught in other synagogues in Galilee, he's finally going to share something with his own people this day. Consider the anticipation. As Jesus began to horizontally unroll this massive scroll of Isaiah, the suspense that could have been created in that moment as everyone's standing, and you can hear the brushing sound of the parchment as Jesus is rolling it from one end to the other. He begins in chapter 1, but the text that he's quoting from is all the way in Isaiah 61. So they're sitting here watching as the Lord rolls the scroll all the way to Isaiah 61. And then he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's verses 18 and 19. With all the prophecies and songs sung about this Messiah King, likely some of those were being talked about. And all the preparatory calls for repentance by John the Baptist up to this point. And the stories of the miracles, the reports of Jesus' captivating teachings. And what we can assume would have been some prior teaching on the significance of this particular passage in Isaiah and the section, the larger portion of text from which it's taken, everyone should have been ready for Jesus reading this and then giving a proper interpretation. Everyone should have been prepared for it by this point. We should also say that after three and a half chapters of Luke, we should be prepared for it too. I'd be willing to bet, however, that many of you had to really concentrate on what Jesus was actually trying to say while I read that Isaiah passage. Preach to the poor, release captives, free those who are oppressed. Ah, buzzwords everywhere. I'm so triggered. Spidey sense is going crazy. Is this the sin liberating Son of God? It sounds a bit like a communist Maoist fever dream. He's the Castro who was to come. Now, back during the tumultuous times of the 60s and 70s, in the impoverished and famine stricken regions of Latin America, under a majority Catholic population, which, thanks to the Vatican II Council, had adopted a very open policy towards world affairs. And, at the same time, Marxist ideology was creating a hope, the same kind of hope that is created by black holes, for all oppressed people everywhere. It was at this point that a Catholic theologian named Gustav Gutierrez published his famous, we should say infamous, work, A Theology of Liberation, History, Politics, and Salvation, 1971. In it, Gustav claimed that the great climax of history is not the return of the king, as Luke is setting us up for here. But rather, quote, a radical change of structures, a social revolution, the continuous creation, never ending, of a new way to be a man, a permanent cultural revolution. This is what is known as liberation theology. And it has had a massive impact on your world. If you're unsure of that, how many of you grimaced when I read the word oppressed from the Isaiah text? Ugh. hate that word. Whereas Protestant standard for truth is the canon of scripture, ad fontis, to the sources, the reformational principle. We go back to the Bible. That's our standard. And the Roman Catholics is scripture and church tradition. The liberation theologian's baseline for truth is, and I quote, the experiences of the oppressed. Now you can probably guess why I'm bringing this up here. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19 is the liberation theologians' go-to text. There are others about God's concern for the poor, judgment on corrupt leaders, all the intersectionality stuff. They run to all sorts of passages, but this passage comes straight from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And, I will say, they see this much rightly. Whatever Jesus said in this moment is definitional of His ministry. Now, we know that they missed the mark, but pause here long enough to consider. Salvation through liberation is the air that America breathes all day long. It is the water that our culture swims in. Gutierrez's liberation theology is more than just a Christian hybridization with Marxism and communism. It is the jet fuel of Christian feminism. It is the inspiration behind James Cone's black liberation theology. It is also the identity or the fountain source of Christian queer theory. And it's created a host of international Christian heresies that pollute the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The current Pope Francis spreads this stuff on his toast every single morning. Barack Obama was a massive fan of liberation theology. This nonsense has swept through politics in America, particularly the Democrat Party, like the Left Behind series gobbled up the GOP. The Jesus of liberation, we have to say this as emphatically as we can. The Jesus of liberation is nothing like the Son of God revealed to us in the Bible. He's not. They use a lot of the same words. Definitions matter. And as I said earlier, Any Jesus other than the one revealed to us in the Bible can't save anybody. He can't. The king had returned, and here he is revealing to the world who he is. He's defining his ministry, what he's all about right here in this moment. If we get this wrong, everything falls apart. Now, let me begin with what would have or should have been obvious to those sitting in attendance in an average synagogue when Jesus stood up to read. From Isaiah 40 onward, the prophet Isaiah tells us of a servant who would come and complete all good, God's good pleasure, from Isaiah 44. The servant would bring forth justice to the nations, Isaiah 42. He would return Jacob back to God that Israel might be brought back to him from Isaiah 49. He was the servant who would sustain the weary with a word, Isaiah 50. The one who would be high and lifted up and greatly exalted from Isaiah 52. Now how would that servant be high and greatly exalted when one verse later many were appalled at him, Isaiah fifty two thirteen, when his appearance was marred more than any man, Isaiah fifty two fourteen, when he was despised and forsaken by men, Isaiah fifty three three, when he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah fifty three, four to five. That's the servant who was coming. That's the servant that Isaiah has been talking about from chapter 40 all the way through. Jesus is here revealing that he is Isaiah's prophesied servant. He's the servant of the Lord. Now we know that the Spirit of the Lord is on him. We read that in the last chapter. We hear the anointing commission of the Father. We've read about that. It revealed to us that Jesus is in fact the new and true Son of God. So when you get to this bit about preaching the gospel to the poor, it's theology of liberation that equates that with donations to impoverished black children in Africa with swollen bellies. Now I know that may make some of you angry, but that's not the revelation Isaiah was looking forward to. Jesus did not come, as one theologian put it, to give his message and benefits thereof, carte blanche, to the socioeconomically poor. Isaiah's words are first and foremost an invitation. The language throughout is preaching, proclaiming, but there's an expected response. But secondly, what you read in verses 18 and 19 is what you might call a soteriological generalization. That's a big word. But in other words, poor doesn't equal people with no money. Isaiah's poverty here is comprehensive. It's all the way up and all the way down. Listen to Paul from 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh. Not many were mighty. Not many were noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's chosen the base things of the world. And the despised, those God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. What does Jesus tell us in the Beatitudes? In the context of those who are persecuted for Jesus, he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You can't hear poor and think money value. That's not what's being spoken of. Commentator Daryl Bach rightly asserted that a strictly material and political interpretation of these verses ignores the crucial spiritual element and also tends to forget that Jesus spoke in chapter 6:23 of Luke, which I just read from, of the reward existing in heaven for those who suffer for him, not for those with no money. This is not the language of violent revolution, Bach goes on to say, but of individual transformation. This is happening at the heart level. How will the whole world be renewed after the image of its creator? What was God's plan to do that? Well, it's not through the Oprah method of, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. We're going to make everybody happy. It's through a spirit wrought regeneration following the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every Christian, every Christian... We can say this without much qualification. Every Christian should agree that the gospel makes poor people rich. But nobody with two eyes in their head should think that that means every Christian gets a private airstrip. It's not about material wealth. Liberation theology and this whole poverty movement, though it may have some good elements to it, in some places and in some people's hearts, has twisted the way that we think about the Word of God. So we come with wrong definitions, and we don't understand what God was teaching us. The same goes with the next phrase. He came to proclaim release to the captives. In verse 18, the Jews in the audience would have immediately thought of a liberation from exile. They would have thought of exile from Egypt, They would have thought of exile from Babylon, the release, and they're hoping for an overthrow of Rome. Get this Roman state off top of us. But every exile in the Old Testament and every deliverance in the Old Testament was meant to portray the bigger and better and final release from the captivity to sin and salvation in Jesus. That's what God was pushing on him again and again and again. You don't need to just be delivered from Babylonians and Egyptians and Romans. You need to be delivered from the sin that has you in its grip. Jesus didn't come to let people out of the slammer. Now, I actually believe that Jesus hates our current prison system. I think that I can prove that from Scripture. He would see an end to it, And he would see that criminals either pay back what they damaged or stole or receive the death penalty for their murders, adulteries, and rapes. That would be the will of our Lord. But what he's saying here in his release of the captives is that he wants to give us the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8.21 The same thing goes for the recovery of sight to the blind we read it and we immediately think, miracles. Like John 9 and the man that was born blind. And the crowd here will want to see this too. We'll get to that next week. They want to see Jesus do some signs. Do a magic trick. Show us something, Jesus. But Jesus' teachings are targeting spiritual blindness in sin. In chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? He's speaking spiritually here. Later on in Luke, he says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. So by the time that we get to the phrase, Free those who are oppressed... At the end of verse 18, there should be no more questions of what kind of oppression Jesus is here to set people free from. And actually, this one's the best on the list. Because the Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke of a day when the servant would come and would set free the oppressed. He made a proclamation of what was going to happen. But Jesus here says, I can and I will bring this about. I'm the guy. John was the herald of the coming good news, but Christ both announces it and accomplishes it. What a Savior. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you today. Do you love the Jesus on the page in front of you? Do you rejoice in your poverty of body and spirit and soul in the gospel of Jesus that makes you a child of the maker and sustainer of the universe, and that this gospel can be received and believed by rich and poor alike? All of your life, there has been and likely will be captivity in the world, slavery, and human trafficking, and child sweatshops, and abuse of every kind, just as there has been for about 6,000 years. But do you love the Jesus who came to set free not just slaves, but slave masters? He's setting free the slave and the man-stealer from the power of their sin. And one day the slave... And the man-stealer will worship together alongside one another. They will worship Jesus together. No longer as enemies, but as members of the body of Christ. Are you okay with that? You okay with the pedophile being saved and worshiping Jesus alongside the one that he criminalized against? That he committed all sorts of atrocities against? Are you okay with that Jesus? Because Jesus came to save He came to set the captives free. Will you love the Jesus who will never give up on taking away the blindness and the blind spots you have to your sin, especially those that you're comfortable living with right now, who will reveal your darkest secrets in the light of His truth. And by the baptism of fire of the Holy Spirit, He will, not He can he will remove it forever. And he will also do that in the lives of people that you currently don't like and people that you don't believe will ever be saved. What about the Jesus who not only proclaims a liberty from oppression of sin, which we like hearing about, but one who also throws wide open the doors of imprisonment and actually leads us out? He's not interested in us just hearing about it. He's going to make it happen. And then when we're walking around with that sin Stockholm syndrome, trying to go back to the flesh and the things that we love, a Jesus who is unwaveringly patient with you. Nope, not that way. Back this way. Further up, further in. This is no reluctant hero. (coughs) This is the magnanimous Christ. This is the revelation of the King. Jesus knows who he is, and he knows what he is about, and his determination to fulfill all the Father's will is absolutely unstoppable. Brothers and sisters, do you know this Jesus? Now, none of what I've said up until this point means that Christ's love and gospel and mission does not include world transformation. As hearts are changed, lives are changed. As lives are changed, families are changed. Churches are changed. Communities are changed. Whole cities and states and countries and eventually the world. The lump ends up leavened. But brothers and sisters, as a people who are looking for that transformation and believing that it's coming, and we hope to see it happen in Clinton in our lifetimes, and we're actively working to see some change right now. We've got our eyes right here. We want to see change happen on this terra firma. Heaven on earth. On earth just as it is in heaven. But brothers and sisters, as people who are looking for that transformation, let us never forget the king that we serve and to pursue him. Jesus' charge against the church in Ephesus has always been the most piercing to my heart when I read it. In Revelation chapter 2, I have this against you. You have left your first love. We rightly despise the pietistic Christianese culture that fakes true religion and puts on a show in front of God and men. But brethren, never lose your love for Jesus. Never stop abiding in the vine. Taking life from the Master who bought you with His own blood. Learn about Him in Scripture and submit to what you learn. Fathers, I encourage you, periodically ask your wife and children. Moms, you can do this too at home with your kids. What have you learned about Jesus recently? Brothers, we are directly charged to lead our families towards Christlikeness. And how can they grow to be like Jesus if they don't hear about him? And how can they hear and learn if you don't know and pursue him yourself? Open the scriptures privately and also at family worship and learn and then teach. If you feel way behind, then drop your theological hobby horse as was prayed earlier today and study the Word of God with the express purpose of finding out everything that you can about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, lastly, when someone in your home shares something they learned about Jesus, stop and worship Him together. I'll conclude where Jesus does in verse 19. He proclaims the favorable year Now, of course, we're meant to think, as those in attendance would have, of the year of Jubilee, the septennial event when all Israel was to release their indentured slaves. But by now, we should know that Jesus isn't trying to resume the literal seven-year release. Some people have argued for that. Notice, he's not quoting Leviticus. Remember, he's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah. He's calling to mind a different kind of freedom. This is more than just a moment of favor. It's more than just a whole year of jubilee. The era of redemption, Jesus says, starts now. I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a completely new era. It's all beginning again. The time from this point forward begins that death starts retreating and grace starts taking over. The curtain is torn, the doors are wide open, and all who fall on their knees before this returning king will find mercy in his sight. So let me ask you, since this was not just meant to be definitional of who Jesus was, but it's meant to be a proclamation as an offer to receive. Lost person, will you receive this Christ that is revealed to us in Scripture today as both Savior and Lord. We sang, Jesus, thank you for washing me from my sins, and immediately after that, hail to Jesus, the King. You have to accept both Jesus as Savior and Lord. The time, the day of salvation, it's here, it's now. Don't keep hanging around with this crowd of believers and pretending that you're in because of everybody else here. Any imagination, fabrication, or altercation of God outside of the revelation of Holy Scripture is sin. Voltaire nailed it when he said this, In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to repay him the favor ever since. The chief sin of man since the dawn of time has been, and it will always be, to try and make God in our likeness rather than dying so that we could be reborn in the likeness of him. Lost one, repent and come and be reborn. No, you can't control this Jesus. You can't put him on a leash. Lewis said, he's not a tame lion, but we know that he's good. He will either be the cornerstone on which you rest. The apostle Peter said, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. Or he will be the stone that you fall on and are broken into pieces over If you love anything more or less than what the Bible reveals to us about the Lord Jesus, you do not love God's one and only Son. But if you acknowledge that the King has returned and that the Bible reveals to you who the King is and you bow to Him in hope of His mercy, He will save you, lost one. For the present, it is still the year of the Lord's favor. Won't you come? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our King who has come, who knew who he was, knew what he was about, and was zealous for your work. Help us to understand him rightly, to repent of the areas in our lives where we have pretended that Jesus ignores our sin. Or that Jesus didn't say that thing, that it really means anything to me today. Things are different now. Even with all of the rich theology that we have, Lord, we know we still bow to the flesh from time to time. And we ask your forgiveness for that. And we seek to know Christ better so that we could be conformed completely into his image. Because we love him and because of him we love you. And we love you because you first loved us in Christ. We thank you for that. So now as we celebrate around your table, let us remember this wonderful, magnanimous Jesus who rescued us from our sins and is our king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.